Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Ramel Ross's 2018 documentary, Hell County, This Morning, This Evening. In 2009, Ramel Ross moved to Hell County in Alabama to teach photography and coach basketball. While living there, he started to film the people around him. He recorded over 1,300 hours of footage. From that material, he culled and mined images that are startling, poetic, and beautiful. Images that bear witness to the complexities and struggles of black life in the rural South. Through the documentary, we are introduced to two men, Quincy Bryant and Daniel Collins. As the film unfolds, we come to know their dreams, their hardships, and the world they live in. A world of basketball, catfish plants, friends, sunsets, storm clouds, rain, and all the details that make up their ordinary lives. This is a contemplative, lyrical, and unforgettable documentary. I'm excited to talk about this film, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. I always enjoy reading your reviews. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode, so I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode all about Ramel Ross's Hell County this morning, this evening. talk about the film I want to talk about something more personal which I do sometimes and this episode I think it's going to be more personal than I expected it to be it I want it to be a mixture of things I want to obviously talk about why this film is important and the way that it shines a light on black life in the south that I think is very deep and rich and meaningful and complex and haunting like haunting to me the way this film is I want to talk about race. I want to talk about important issues of racism and all of that, of course, and the political dimensions of this film. But because it is set in the South where I live and it evoked personal things for me, it evoked feelings and memories and all kinds of things, I want to weave that into the tapestry of this episode as well. So this is one of those episodes it'll be a mixture of the personal, the political, all of that. That's how I am with film. Film is always personal to me. It's always an experience, a deeply emotional experience for me. And that's what I try to communicate through these episodes. 
But first, before I get into the film, I just wanted to say something. Sometimes I have revelations that I need to share with those of you who listen. I had a big revelation recently. I was having a rough time. I was just thinking about things and it's been a year, right? 2020 has been a year for all of us with the COVID-19 pandemic in particular. The election has happened. Joe Biden is president-elect, but obviously Donald Trump is not going to let the transition go easily and, and there's a lot of drama going on and it's stressful. This pandemic, as I record is getting very scary, very out of control here in the United States. I've talked about it all year in episodes. I see these episodes a bit like an audio diary. I don't even see this necessarily as a podcast. Yes, it's a podcast, but in a lot of ways for me, it's more like a audio film diary. I literally sit in my room <laughs> talking into a microphone by myself just kind of capturing my thoughts and feelings and everything about films. That's all it is, really. And I try to also document my life in some way and my experiences. And 2020 has been scary. I'm recording this in November of 2020. Between the election and the pandemic and then personal things that I've gone through in my life this year, it's been a struggle. It has been a hard year. The pandemic in particular is very scary right now. The cases are just frightening. There's no attempt to get it under control. It's just, I I feel I will be haunted by what I've experienced in 2020 and probably going into 2021 until the vaccine is readily available and everybody takes it. I feel like, but particular with 2020, I will be haunted by what I have witnessed this year for the rest of my life. And I hope to God we never let anybody in the future forget what happened and forget what took place this year. I know there's going to be an attempt to forget. There's going to be an attempt to whitewash it, to make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it was. But as we go on with our lives and live after this pandemic, We cannot let people forget. These episodes bear witness to what happened this year. I will never let anybody forget what took place and the hundreds of thousands of lives that were needlessly lost to this pandemic in the United States because nothing was done to stop it hardly. Nothing. The government didn't do anything to stop it, to protect us, to help us. We are living in an age of selfishness and inequality that is staggering. And we must never let anybody forget what we felt, what we suffered, what we witnessed during this pandemic. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I I, I have no idea. I, I can't say I have a lot of hope for it, but I know also that minorities, black people, people of color have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic and working class people as well. And those are subjects of, of Hell County this morning, this evening as well. I'm going on a tangent, but what I wanted to say was that this year has been a nightmare. It's been brutal. It's been scary. It will haunt me the rest of my life. I will never forget what I experienced 
during this pandemic. That just has to be said. But in the midst of this freaking year (laughs) that I've struggled with so much, I did have a revelation a few days ago. And I realized that what I have always wanted in my life is something that I finally have. And it just hit me with such a great force, this revelation. People come to me and they say, I watched a film because you recommended it or because you talked about it on the podcast or you shared images of it on social media. When I recommend a film to people or I post about it or I talk about it here on this podcast or I post about it on social media, there are people who actually go and watch that film or they will watch things that I recommend or that I love. You know, if I say that I love a film, there are people who will go and watch it and they fall in love with it too. And they'll tell me, oh, I really loved this film or I loved your episode about another film. That still absolutely thrills me in every way. (laughs) It never gets old. I never get tired of it. Never get tired of hearing from people who say, you've made a positive impact on my life. You know, because of you, I watched this film or I got into this director or even because of your podcast, I saw a film in a different way. You gave me a different perspective. That will never not thrill me. It just absolutely, (laughs) I can't explain to you the way that it makes me feel. You know, I remember when I was first becoming a cinephile in my early 20s in 2011, starting in 2011, when I first got into European art house cinema. And I remember the people who recommended certain films to me, or I remember, you know, Roger Ebert and, you know, critics like that, people like that who would get me interested in a film or people on social media that I followed. I'll never forget those people because they brought something so beautiful into my life. Art is profoundly comforting to me. Art is what helps me live and survive. So books, poetry, music, cinema, all of that, that helps me live and helps me survive in the world. So I take it really seriously when people recommend stuff to me or if I end up loving something that someone tells me about, it's almost like I love that person. (laughs) It's like this feeling of love or I guess tenderness for the person who brings something into my life that I deeply love and connect to. It's almost like I transfer some of that love or emotion onto that person. It's, (laughs) I don't know if other people feel that way. When people tell me that, it moves me. And it's important to me. It makes me feel like I matter. It makes me feel like people respect me, maybe, or they admire me, or they trust me. They think that I have good taste. They think that I have the ability to sort of discern, you know, quality films. And they like my, maybe they like my perspective, or they like what I'm drawn to, or what I'm passionate about. So it makes me feel like I matter. And that's what I've always wanted in my life. I've always wanted to affect other people in some way, and to feel like I matter. Because I never felt that way. I've, (laughs) like, growing up, I was nobody. I was nothing. People did not treat me well. The world did not treat me well. I felt small and invisible and inconsequential like I was nothing in the world. 
I had really great parents, but beyond that, I didn't have a family that really loved me or talked to me or wanted to get to know me. I didn't have classmates and lots of friends who thought I was amazing and built me up and made me feel good about myself or made me care felt made me feel cared for or like I was important. And so it's taken me <laughs> 30 some years to finally feel like I matter in the world. I'm 31. I actually have the one thing that I've always wanted. And it happened in a year (laughs) that has just been a nightmare. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for four years now. I started this podcast in 2016. And it's 2020 as I record this. So it's not necessarily like I just got it or something. I've been I've been doing the podcast for a few years. But 2020, I don't want to say it feels like a turning point. But 2020, like the podcast has grown a little bit. Like I used to not get a lot of messages from people. And then something happened in 2020 where I've started to get more people reaching out to me and saying, oh, I really like the podcast or... I like what you post on social media. I like the films that you share. So maybe it's just the fact that more people have reached out to me and they've told me. And so I've had that confirmation that I've had some kind of impact on other people. Whereas before I didn't have that as much. I didn't know if I didn't know who was listening really for a while. <laughs> like I didn't know if if I was having any kind of effect in the world. But this year is when I've finally kind of felt like, oh, you know, I'm reaching people, I'm making contact with people, and I'm affecting them in some way. The one thing I've always wanted in my life was to matter and to have a positive effect on other people's lives. And through this podcast, I've been able to do that. And I don't know what to make of this, that the one thing I've always wanted, I finally have. Because I'm the kind of person who's always yearning for things that I can't have. It always feels like what I want is just beyond my grasp, is just beyond my hands or something. Like I can't grab onto it. And I'm always yearning and yearning. And I feel incomplete. I feel like something's missing in my life. And like I can never feel whole. I can never have the things that I want. And so when I realized that recently that, oh, the one thing I was longing for beyond love. I mean, I think we all pretty much long for unconditional love. I'm still searching for that. (laughs) I'm still searching for love from a, you know, another person and, you know, that kind of deep, deep connection. But one of the things that I've always longed for is to matter and to have an effect on the world, to affect other people. And now I have it. What, What does it mean to have the thing that you always wanted? It feels good. I will be honest with you. When I realized it, it was like I felt so much lighter. I felt like almost like this weight had been lifted off of me and and felt like, wow, (laughs) this thing that I always longed for, I actually have it, but I couldn't see it. It was right in front of me and I couldn't see it, that I have it. I have it. And I do matter to some people. And that feels really good. And I'm also the kind of person where I don't know how to be content. (laughs) I don't know how to be happy. I don't know how to feel joy because I'm always very sad. I'm very wrapped up in my pain and my suffering. And it has come to define me in a lot of ways. My devastation, my grief. These are things that I talk about on the podcast. It's just so strange. It's like 
oh, the one thing I wanted I have. And how do I accept that? How do I be okay with that when I'm so used to yearning for what I can't have? And I'm so used to being really deeply connected to my sadness and my pain. And this is something positive and joyful and amazing that's happened to me. I'm not used to great things happening to me either. (laughs) Some of you can probably relate to this. (laughs) What do I do when good things happen to me? How do I accept good things happening to me without this fear that I feel that like, who am I now? Like I'm not used to good things. I'm used to pain and suffering and loss. I'm not used to nice things (laughs) and great things, but I I'm trying to be more open to that. And I'm trying to feel gratitude and thankfulness that, wow, I have this thing that I've always wanted and it's right here in my hands and it's real and it's, and it's beautiful. And it happened to me through this little podcast that I created four years ago. It's pretty amazing when I stop to think about it. It just feels so special and so... (laughs) like miraculous that I have this. This has really helped raise me up from the the grave in a way. Like this has resurrected me, restored me to be able to sit here and talk about films to people. And not only just to talk about films, but then to to get other people to watch the films and to see the way that the films affect their lives, right? Like that's part of it too. It's not just about me talking about the film. It's also about me knowing that somebody is listening, somebody cares, somebody likes my taste, and then they go and they seek out that film. They have their own experience with it. It affects their life in some way. And I was just sort of one of the, (laughs) I just sort of brought it into their lives. I was the thing that brought a person and a film together. I don't know what you would call that. I was the matchmaker. I am the film matchmaker. I am bringing people (laughs) together with films that they might love. And that's such a great feeling. And I'm not used to it. (laughs) I will be honest with you. I am not used to feeling good about myself. I'm not used to feeling a sense of purpose. I'm not used to feeling like I matter. I'm not used to any of this. But you know what? I'm open to it. And I'm going to accept it as a gift. And I'm going to be grateful for it because I know everybody doesn't have it. I'm very lucky to have this platform. I'm lucky that I have people reach out to me somewhat regularly and tell me nice things and say, thank you for what you do, or you brought a great film into my life and I really loved it or whatever they say to me. How lucky am I to have that? Not everybody gets to have it. It has saved my life. This podcast has brought so much good into my life. And those of you who listen and those of you who reach out to me and and engage with me online, you have brought such richness and beauty, all of that into my life. I'm someone who's been through a lot. I know we all have suffered, but I have been through a lot in my life. And I talk about it very openly on this podcast. I have gone through a lot of pain for a really long time and I didn't know how I would survive it. I didn't know if I'd ever come out of it. But through this podcast, I have found my worth. I have found my voice. I have found 
confidence. I have um, really used film and cinema and other forms of art to rebuild my life and rebuild myself and to restore myself. Film gives me a reason to live. Art gives me a reason to live. I feel like that's why I'm here. I feel like that is why I am alive, is to experience art. And not only that, but to share that experience with other people. I watch these films and I want to share with you what they make me feel, how they affect me. And that's my purpose right now. That's the purpose that I have found. And it's helping me. It's helping me rise again and live again beyond the pain, beyond the grief and the loss and the trauma that I've known in my life. And I'm eternally grateful for that. I have the thing that I always wanted and I can't believe it. I really can't believe it. All I ever wanted was to matter to people and to bring great things into their lives and to be a positive presence for other people. And I finally have it (laughs) and I can't believe it, (laughs) but I'm so thankful for it. And I'm thankful for every single one of you who listens. I really am. So I will stop going on about that now. On to Hell County this morning, this evening. We're going to talk about this film. Rarely does a film stay with me the way that this one has. And for me, that is the sign or the hallmark of a really great film or an important film, at least for me personally in my life. I ask myself, do I feel that I've inhabited another life when I watch the film? Does that life stay with me? as I exist after the film? How does the film remain alive inside of me? So there are images that have haunted me from this film, from my very first viewing of it. I watched it when it came out in 2018. I watched it on PBS. So grateful to PBS and some of the gems that they bring into my life. And this is one of them. It's a very poetic film. It's an unconventional film. I'll dig into that as I talk about it, but every, but so much about it stayed with me. The people in the film stayed with me, particularly Boozy and the loss that she goes through. But Daniel stayed with me. Quincy stayed with me. All of these men and women, these young people stayed with me after the film ended. I cared about them. I cared about their story and their lives. Every month, I choose two films right now when I do the podcast. And I like to choose two films that have some kind of thematic connection where I see them as a double feature. And I chose to pair Hell County this morning, this evening with Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991. And I have an episode about Daughters of the Dust if you'd like to listen to that. For me, both of these films provide poetic visions of the rural South, visions of black life in the rural South that have not really been seen. And that is what was so compelling to me about both films. I wanted to cover Hell County this morning, this evening, And I may shorten it to just Hell County as I'm talking about it because the title is a bit long. I chose to talk about this film in 2020 for a very important reason, which is the Black Lives Matter protests and how much larger the movement has become. It's been around for quite a few years. It was born out of the the Trayvon Martin case when George Zimmerman was acquitted of killing Trayvon Martin quite a few years ago. But it's, you know, every few years something tends to ignite 
protests. And this year, of course, it was the the killing of George Floyd, but there was also the the killing of Breonna Taylor, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. We've had quite a few explosive incidents. It's fueled outrage. It's fueled the demands for justice and the focus on the systemic racism in American society. I thought 2020 was the perfect year to talk about these films and to talk about films that give us rich, deep, interesting, complex, life-affirming portraits of black life. I I just thought it was essential to talk about these films. I think Hell County in particular, Daughters of the Dust is set in 1902. So it's focusing on black life at the turn of the 20th century. It's looking at those, some of those ghosts of slavery as well. And Hell County has that. History is in this film, particularly in some of the scenes like of Cotton. And I think there's a scene from a D.W. Griffith film. I think it's a scene from Birth of the Nation, The Birth of a Nation of a Man in Blackface. So there are nods to history and it's always there, those wounds of slavery, of racism throughout the film. But Daughters of the Dust is more about the past and it's set in the past Whereas Hell County is set right now. You know, it's set in the last, oh, about the last decade, I guess. It was it was filmed over five years and then it came out in 2018. So it's a little bit of time has passed, but it's about contemporary black life in the rural South. And we don't always see films like that. We don't see films like this. This is a very rare film. So I wanted to talk about the film, particularly for that reason of the rise of Black Lives Matter, the rise of more conversations about racism, about how to tackle racism and how we should be doing that. And I think those conversations are really important. And I do my best with my own platform to bring attention to films about black people. I do try to do that. I have an episode about Barry Jenkins' film Moonlight. I have an episode about Kathleen Collins' film Losing Ground. I post about films about black people on my social media. I try to watch them. I try to watch as many as I can, whether it's Cane River or Eve's Bayou or Pariah or Just Another Girl in the IRT. I try to watch those films. I'm not perfect. There's always room for improvement, but I try really hard to use cinema, to use film as a way to enter other people's lives, the lives of people who are different from me. And that includes black people, people of color. I think that's an important part of film. For an hour and a half or whatever, you're in the subjectivity, you're in the the universe, the world of another person or, or other people. And you get to see life from their perspective for a little while. And I always think that that's an enriching experience and an important thing. And I hope that more film lovers, more cinephiles will do that. I do think we can get in our comfort zones with film. Sometimes you have to push yourself beyond that. And I have found that some of my best experiences with film have been when I've pushed myself beyond my comfort zone. You can make some amazing discoveries and revelations that way. So I think it's important to always be open to that. Hell County 
I don't know how many people have heard of this film. It did get nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars. It didn't win. I think Free Solo won instead. But what an amazing moment that would have been if it had won. You know, people who are listening to this episode, maybe some of my regular listeners who... I have some people who will watch the films that I'm talking about and they may not have seen this. I don't know how well known it is. I think it's kind of a small film. It's sort of experimental. It's poetic. It's lyrical. It's not your average documentary. It might be more challenging to some people, but I think it's worth it to experience this film and open yourself up to it. Not only is this film about black people in the South, I think it's an authentic portrait of the South itself and of Alabama. I live in Alabama. I'm going to talk about that in this episode. I moved to Alabama a few years ago. And so this film was has been powerful for me in actually seeing on screen somewhere where I live. I don't live in Hell County. I live in another part of Alabama. I saw like my own world in a way reflected. I grew up most of my life in North Carolina until I was about 26 years old. And then I moved to Alabama in 2016. And I've lived there. I've lived here ever since. I do want to use this episode a little bit to talk about that because North Carolina and Alabama are both in the South, but it's very different to live here than it was to live in North Carolina. There are things you have to get used to. It is a different experience because this would be considered more the deep South which North Carolina is not considered that. So I did want to talk about that. So as someone who lives in the South and specifically lives in Alabama, I recognize the rhythms, images, settings, and the feel of this film. The The film captures the feeling of living in this region in a way that not a lot of films do. I see myself in this film. I see the places I drive by and the world that I inhabit. Now, I will acknowledge I am white. I'm a white woman. So I obviously do not have the same exact experience as Boozy or Daniel or Quincy. I don't have the same experience as a black person in Alabama or in the South. And I know it's much more complex and it's a different experience for them because they have to deal with racism. And that's important to acknowledge. But I do think we share a common experience uh, that we both live in the South and when you live here, it's it's a unique experience, I think. I've left the South before, and I'll talk about all of this in a little bit. It's a unique experience to live here, I think. And so that's something that I personally connected to in the film, was the setting. Even though this is a documentary, to me... I think that's the right genre and the right categorization for it because it is a documentary. It's about real people, but it's also dreamlike and poetic because of the lack of narrative, the fragmented imagery, the way that it's put together. It's nonlinear and things like that. It's slower. There's an attention to detail, right? And that may be challenging for some people. But I love that about the film. I love films like this. I have no problem with films like this. I mean, the the one film that I would, I would compare it to the most is The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And I have an episode about The Tree of Life. And Ramel Ross talked about this in some interviews, that one of his inspirations, I don't think The Tree of Life was a direct inspiration for him, but he found himself asking, what if you gave that kind of budget 
the Tree of Life budget to a black director, what would that kind of film look like? I think what you would get is something similar to Hell County, where it has the poetic imagery, it has this collage, mosaic quality to it. It's all these different moments. It's an accumulation of moments that create a life. It's it's a hard film to talk about. The Tree of Life was a hard film to talk about. I still can't believe I did an episode about it, honestly. <laughs> like when I look back, I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Trying to talk about the Tree of Life and Hell County is a little bit similar because of that that lyricism and just it's it's just one of those films you have to watch you have to experience it it's harder to talk about it because you have to see the images and so it's elliptical it's non-linear you may not even understand well why is he showing some of these moments what's important about these details you have to create the meaning i think just like when you're watching the tree of life and i'll probably bring up the tree of life throughout this episode just to warn you because that was what um i compared it to in my mind you may not understand like the uh the logic of the images and why they're edited together the way that they are but it creates its own rhythm it creates its own meaning and you create the meaning from the film that's what i did i connected to the people in the film and I also felt my own life was reflected in some way in some of my experiences and I connected to to their lives to their tragedy to their struggles yes they are black and I am white but we are humans and there are universal things that a lot of us go through like grief and coming of age and trying to figure out who we are and struggling financially and being working class and sometimes I think we get so focused on the ways that we're different and sometimes it's helpful to say well what are the things that bind us to each other how can we have solidarity with each other? How can we connect through our differences and also see ways that we are interconnected and very similar? And I think that's important as well. I really loved something that Arthur Jaffa said in an interview. He was the cinematographer for Julie Dash's film Daughters of the Dust. And he talked about how like, why can't black films represent all of humanity? Or why can't a black figure, a black person in art represent all of humanity? And the comparison he used was David, the statue of David by Michelangelo. When we look at David, we see universal human experiences, right? David and Goliath, the little guy going up against the big guy or whatever. And he's seen as a representation of all of humanity. But when you look at a statue of a black person or a painting of a black person or a film about a black person, they only represent the black experience. Well, why can't their experience be universal? Why can't any human being see themselves in a black character or a black subject? And why can't that black subject represent all of humanity? And I almost see that in Hell County where, yes, the people in this film are black and their lives are shaped by that. Their lives are shaped by racism, by the history of slavery, the wounds of slavery. Absolutely. I will never understand that experience. I can try. I can watch this film. I can read books. I can do all that I can to try to understand the experiences of other people in this world while I'm here. And I can try to have empathy. But I can also see some of my experience, my life in them. What What is wrong with that? You know, I know what it's like to work at 
at a factory. I did when I was younger. I didn't work at a catfish plant the way that some of the people in this film do. But I know what it's like to do pretty grueling work in like a factory setting that's really hard. I know what it's like to live in rural Alabama when there's bad weather. Because <laughs> you see that a little bit in the film. I know what it's like to live in the South. I know what it's like to struggle financially. To not have a lot of money. To be working class. I know what it's like to lose somebody I love. I know what grief is like. I know what it's like to be young and to want to be so much. And to dream the way that Daniel in particular does and to want so much in your life and Quincy as well both of them they want to make something of their lives so I saw some of my own experiences in the people in this film that's a powerful part of the film for me it makes it emotional it makes it personal for me so I I love that aspect of the film And as I said, I moved to Alabama in 2016, and so I've lived here for a few years. The thing about the South, I've lived outside of it a little bit. I didn't live outside of it for too long. I went to New England, the New England area, for a few months, and I never want to go back. I'm sorry if any of you are in the Northeast or New England. We don't get those kind of winters here in the South, and they were brutal. I was in New England during the winter, and that was more than I ever wanted to experience in my life. So now I'm back in the South. And this place is so, it's part of my blood and it's part of my marrow living in the South. My accent gives me a way that I am from the South. When I was up North, people could immediately tell I was from the South and they would ask me where I was from. And it was such a weird feeling to stand out in that way and to not hear people with my accent. I was used to that my entire life in the South and I felt like a fish out of water as they say when I was out of the South. The restaurants were different. Things that I was used to were different. I grew up in the rural South, rural North Carolina when I was growing up. Even now here in Alabama I live in a very rural area. All of that is part of me. The South is almost like the siren song for me. This this region is complicated and there are bad things about it, yes. There is racism, there is a <laughs> there's stupidity. I'm gonna say it, right? There there is there are people who are backwards right? There is an obsession with religion and conservatism. It's politically conservative. I'm not saying everything about living here is great. I'm not saying that. But for me, it's nature. It's the landscape. It's the smell of the earth at night and after it rains. It's the dogwood trees. (laughs) It's the forests. It's the meadows. It's the butterflies. It's the big blue sky. Rural country roads like it's in my blood it's in my blood you know I go outside sometimes and I can see the stars and the moon and I smell you know the grass and the soil and it's like I can feel the earth breathing under my feet it is so elemental to me it is such a part of my soul living here and I felt like I was dying a bit inside when I was not in the south and when we did come back here it was a relief 
it was a relief to return. It's like a siren song. I have so many issues with it because I'm an atheist and I'm a leftist and I'm not conservative. I'm not religious. I'm not any of those things. I've always clashed with people. I've never felt like I really belonged necessarily or could find people, but it's the, it's the earth. It's the land. It's, it's a feeling of this place that I can't get out of my system. The film for me evoked some photographs by William Christenberry, and I absolutely love his photography. Like, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. He took a lot of photos of rural Alabama, churches and graveyards and lakes and trees and houses. And I really, really recommend looking at William Christenberry's photography. I don't think Ramel Ross was influenced by it, but sometimes I like to mention other forms of art that a film might make me think about. And also with Hell County, another film that it reminded me of was Chantal Ackerman's film South. She did this documentary about um, a hate crime that was done against a man named James Bird Jr. It happened in 1998 in Jasper, Texas. He was murdered by three racists and white supremacists. They attached him to the back of their truck and they drug him down a country road for three miles until he died. And it was this horrible hate crime that happened in 1998. And Ackerman went to the the region. She went to the town of Jasper and she did her documentary. And that is also another documentary that I feel like evokes the South and captures the South. It captures the authenticity, the rhythm, the feel of living in this region, I think. So it's one of the more authentic films that I've seen about the South as well. And even though Hell County is not about a hate crime, it's it's not about any anything violent necessarily, when I was watching it, it just evoked things for me of that film by Chantal Ackerman. And I wanted to mention it. I recommend that film to you. It's difficult to watch. It's it's about something so violent that's it, that it's unfathomable. Ackerman is able to take us as far as she can into that violence and horror, but she does it in such a powerful, non-graphic, non-exploitative way. She was a genius. She is one of the greatest directors who ever lived, right? I'm a huge fan of her. And this film is so incredibly powerful. And there's also another documentary called Two Towns of Jasper that I also recommend. It's about the same hate crime and about James Bird Jr. and all that. I thought of that. I thought of that film in particular when I watched this. As you watch the film, you really feel like you're watching a life unfold. You're seeing these moments in other people's lives that you usually only feel in your own life. The moments are so small but revelatory. They're almost too ordinary to ever appear in a conventional film. But that's why I love it. I love these little details like rain falling on the pavement or a child (laughs) with his arms out in the wind during a storm. I think as you watch the film, you feel more connected to life because of those small poetic moments. 
It's like this collage. It's this swirling mass of images that somehow give us the essence of existence, the essence of life. And so I think I will approach this film the way I did with The Tree of Life. Um, Neither one of them have much of a narrative. They're more a collection of moments. And I'll just go through the film and talk about some of those moments. And I guess I'll create my own meaning of the film in that way and my own narrative of the film. It's just a mosaic of these poetic moments. And I think that Ramel Ross... Because he's a photographer, he brings that artist's eye to the film. He started in photography. And I tell you, some of our best directors started as photographers. Agnes Varda started as a photographer before she became a filmmaker. So I think that Ramel brings that attention to detail in this film. He shot like 1,300 hours, 1,300 hours of footage and then narrowed it down to just a few. This is how he talked about filming it and sort of putting some of these images together. It's from an interview that he did with Descent magazine. Quote, with the necessary and urgent task of depicting and expressing the black community's traumas, what is lost is everything else. So my process was simple. Use time. And once the collection of unexpected events and images grew large enough, they began to speak to each other in their form, their shapes, and colors, and sounds. And placing them beside each other began to create new meanings. Meanings the isolated image couldn't conjure on its own. But isn't this also how the mind works? It edits out most and then connects what is kept. To produce a narrative and determine what is reasonable and meaningful. We want to recreate that feeling, that dream logic, the whimsy of associative thinking in the context of fresh moments oozing with intimacy and the sensory, unquote. And he said that the way that he chose images was this way, quote, but there was one stipulation for every image included in the film before the final edit process. It had to lean heavily toward exceptional or unexpected beauty. Unquote. He was looking for beauty. This is something, it's something I talk about in Daughters of the Dust as well. We see a lot of trauma and violence against black people on a pretty regular basis, not just in films, but in the videos that are captured of police brutality. We see black pain and black suffering and trauma in such a almost casual way if that makes sense. It is on our screens in ways that trauma and pain against white people is not shown. We don't see white people on a regular basis being choked or tasered or uh, murdered in front of us so blatantly. Like Philando Castile comes to mind. I will never, ever forget the images of his death. The blood-stained shirt That is something that I was not prepared to see. I will never forget the video of Eric Garner, uh, ever, 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 ever. That had such an effect on me, like physically, physically. I couldn't even handle it when I saw it. I think I only watched it once, actually. I could never watch it again. When the George Floyd thing happened, that was also very visceral for people and horrific. And it was shown over and over and over. I'm not saying those videos are not important. Of course they are. They are evidence of a crime that was committed. Those images bear witness to a life that has been lost. But I do think we have to raise the question, what does it mean to see something like that on a regular basis? What does it mean to see black people being harmed 
and violated and murdered? What does it mean to see their death instead of their life? And Hell County is about their life. It is about life. It's not about death. And Daughters of the Dust was also about life and beauty and family and love. We need those those images too. That's important as well. We need it even more. We need to see black people living and loving and all of these positive, beautiful things in their life too. And that's what Hell County gives us. It gives us beauty. It gives us poetry. It gives us life rather than death. And I think that's important too. I was also kind of reminded of Jonas Mikas. He did a lot of film diaries. He was like an experimental filmmaker. He died recently and I love his work. I don't watch it all the time. I'm not always in the mood for more experimental or fragmented or like film diary type stuff, but I did watch some of his films and I really liked them. And I would almost say this is almost a bit like a film diary. I mean, Ramel Ross went to live in Alabama for a little while and he taught basketball. He taught photography. He did this in 2009. That's when he first moved to Alabama. And he started to take these videos, right? Capture these images. And it almost feels like a film diary in a way like capturing his life with the people around him. It feels like that a bit. It's a film that mixes nature and the human. We have butterflies and trees and cows and we have all kinds of nature uh, in this film. And then we also have people and their lives and their tragedies and their triumphs and their struggles. We also have a portrait of working class life in the rural South. And I'll talk about that in a, in a little while, talking about the catfish plant and stuff like that. So there's so much going on in this film. It's both personal in that it's about uh, the small microcosm of Daniel and Quincy and Boozy and, and their universe, the universe of Ramel Ross and, and the people he got to know and that I'm sure he loved and cared about while he was in Alabama. And then it's also political in that it is about race. It is about being working class. It is about the precarity, you know, financial precarity of life as well. And it's very specific and also universal. There's just so much going on in the film. It, it really gives us the substance, the material of our lives is what this film is about. Trips to Walmart, sunsets, you know, so much of what I see in this film is my daily life. I have cows down the street. I drive by cow pastures. I go to Walmart. I, you know, all these things. I watch the sunset. I see butterflies. <laughs> like, so much of what I see in this film is my own life reflected. And that's rare. It is so incredibly rare. I remember the first time I read a book that reflected my life. And it was by Fred Chappell, who's a writer from North Carolina. And he writes about Appalachia, the Appalachian region of North Carolina. I didn't grow up in that region, but, you know, obviously I, I lived in the area, you know, in the state itself. And up to that point, I was a teenager and I had read just your basic classics, The Great Gatsby and Heart of Darkness and, you know, Hamlet and Macbeth and all the stuff that you read in high school. I just came up, I, came, I had a teacher who recommended Fred Chappell's books to me. He has, um, he has a set of four that's about the same characters and it starts with I Am One of You Forever that book. I still, 
I always mean to go back and reread his books, but I Am One of You Forever by Fred Chappell had such a big impact on me when I was younger and a teenager. It's beautifully written. He's a beautiful writer. He's a beautiful poet as well. He writes poetry and I love quite a few of his poems as well. I just thought he was, I've always thought he was an impressive writer. He didn't really get the attention that he deserves. And so I read I Am One of You Forever. I got it from my local library. And the first time that I read that book, it was it was a story set in North Carolina. It was a story set in the landscape, the universe, the world that I myself inhabited. And it was so beautifully written and it was so rich and gorgeous. And he took the substance of my life and created art out of it and literature out of it. And it was so powerful to see that reflected on the page. And it's the same with Hell County for me. It's one of those films I mean, I think the Tree of Life kind of did it too. The Tree of Life was set in Texas. So it's also about life in the South. But Hell County just, because I live in Alabama, it just had such a powerful effect on me to see that world. And also the connection I felt to the people in the film and their experiences and how moved I was by their lives and their words and what they went through. So Ramel Ross has taken these very individual, very specific lives and presented them in such a way that you connect to them and you feel for them and you care about them and you see what they face you know, you see the racism, you see the working class struggles and all of that. You see the political and you see the personal. So now I'm just going to go through the film and talk about scenes, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of hard to talk about this film, but I'm going to give it a try. It's about Daniel Collins and Quincy Bryant. The opening of the film sets things up for us that Ramel Rawls moved to Alabama in 2009. He taught photography, coached basketball, basketball and he says the discovering began I love that on that title card the discovering so when he goes to Alabama it's not where he grew up you know not where he had ever lived before he goes to Hell County he starts to discover Alabama he starts to discover the beauty around him and the lives of the people around him I absolutely love that word discovering I feel like maybe that's how we should all try to live. It's hard living in the rural South. There is this sense sometimes that you're living somewhere that's so conservative and so Christian and so backwards. And I will never deny any of that. Is there racism? Yeah. Is there sexism, homophobia, all kinds of bad stuff in the rural South? Yeah. But I would argue that stuff's everywhere, not just the rural South. We have issues. I'm not going to deny the dark parts of the South ever. The wounds and the history of slavery and racism are absolutely here. Absolutely. I would never deny it. I just argue that we look at this area in a complex way. That's all. I would just rather people not generalize about it and say that everybody, the millions of people who live in the South are all one way. There's also a history of resistance in this region, of protest, of mass movements through Martin Luther King Jr. in particular, the civil rights movement and stuff like that. There is a large black population that live in the South. So let's not act like that doesn't exist, right? You you can focus on the bad, but I think you should also focus on all of it, all the flaws, all the complexities. 
And Ramel says that he just started to photograph his day-to-day life. And that's sort of how the film started. And he did it for five years. And in one title card, it says, what is the orbit of our dreaming? I think that's so interesting. What is the orbit of our dreaming? I think sometimes when you live in this region, you feel like your life is very limited. And it was also powerful for me to see in this film the beauty of living here. The butterflies, the trees, the rain, all of that. The country roads, the cow pastures, and to feel like there is beauty all around me. Because sometimes I get, I forget that, or I don't see it, or it eludes me. And sometimes what grounds me and helps me get through the day or something is seeing a butterfly, is looking at the clouds, looking at the stars, and those small poetic moments, and finding the poetry and the beauty in the ordinary and in your everyday life. And sometimes that really helps me. The film kind of begins with like um, him driving down a road and there's people on either side. It kind of looks like a parade's going to start or something. And you see like a church and, you know, when he was driving down that road and showed that church, I was like, that looks like, that looks like something outside my window. I mean, I was so shocked by it. I was like, that looks like a road that I've been down. I'm living in the same landscape and sort of the same world as this film somewhat, at least when it comes to the the look and the landscape of the South. It looked familiar to me, things that I drive by. We see the cow pasture. That that looks like the kind of cow pasture that I've seen all the time around here in Alabama. There's this image of black men on horses. I thought that was kind of interesting. This film actually, I think, came out before Lil Nas X and his big hit, Old Town Road. So I couldn't help but think about Old Town Road when I saw the guys on the different horses, for sure. There's a scene of just this woman, this black woman holding a fly swatter. What's the significance of that? It's just these images that you make your own meaning out of. You can interpret it how you want. I think it's a, I think on the level of aesthetics, he's chosen beautiful images. They may not have some really deep meaning. Not every moment of our lives is really deep and meaningful. It's just a woman holding a fly swatter. You know, it just is what it is, but there's something striking about it, to me at least. You know, it's the rhythm and texture of everyday life, and that's always moving and awe-inspiring to me. I, Like I said, I'm always looking for little moments of poetry in my ordinary life. The sun streaming through a window or listening to birdsong. So I love films like this. I don't need necessarily for there to be more than what there is in this film of a woman holding a fly swatter or men on horses. That's just enough for me because that's life. That's people living their lives. And I love to watch films about people just living their lives, like documentaries like that. I guess observational documentaries or contemplative documentaries. I think some people would find Hell County like boring or slow or too fragmented, maybe even challenging. They don't know what to make of these images or what's the point of it. It's so boring. I do think some people go to film they don't want ordinary life. They want explosions and car crashes and action and narrative. And I'm not saying that I don't watch films with narratives. Of course I do. I watch classic Hollywood. I watch all kinds of different films, but I also make time and make space for films like Hell County. I make space for films that are more poetic, non-linear, more maybe challenging or slower. I think those matter too. I mean, I love it deeply. I love what this film is doing. There's a woman holding her baby and singing to the baby. 
As I said, this is a hard film to talk about because the image is central. Ramel, because he started in photography and now is doing filmmaking, the image is paramount. The image is crucial and central. You have to watch it. You have to experience it. And really all I can communicate through this episode is my experience of the film and my feelings of the film and what it evokes for me. A scene of a girl rubbing lotion on another girl's back. But the intimacy of that, like he captured this moment of intimacy. So many women know what that's like when you go to the beach or whatever, and you might have your girlfriend with you and she rubs lotion on your back or something. It's a moment of intimacy, a moment of touch, a moment of friendship. We see young black men at basketball practice. Basketball is a huge, huge part of this film. Ramel Ross was a basketball coach. When Daniel goes to college, he plays basketball. It's an important thing to him. Basketball is very important in this film. And we see quite a few images of that. There's one of a young man, he's dribbling a basketball and it looks like drops of sweat are falling, um, are sprinkling on the concrete. And then Ramel Ross cuts to another scene of rain falling on a sidewalk. So there's like a, there's like an echo in those two images or a connection between those two images of the sweat sprinkling on the concrete and then the rain, the little drops of rain falling on the pavement, like a mass of droplets. And I loved that scene because I've, <laughs> I'm not a photographer by any means. Um, and I'm not a filmmaker. I come from a literary background. I approach film in a more literary way. I don't talk as much about technical stuff or anything like that, but I do take photos with my phone. Of course, I take videos and photos and I always, <laughs> I'm that person taking photos of the clouds and, <laughs> and the tree branches, like the shapes of the tree branches. And I absolutely love that moment when it starts to rain and the sidewalk is clear and then all of a sudden, as the rain starts to fall, the droplets start to cover the sidewalk. They start to cover the, the pavement or the concrete. And I love the, the pattern that the droplets create, all those little circles on the pavement. I've taken photos of that. I've taken video of it. I love to take video when it's raining and the water is dripping from the eaves. I talked about that in the Tree of Life because there's a scene in the Tree of Life of rain dripping from the eaves. And I, I took video of that just a few months ago, I remember. So I'm that person taking photos of all that stuff. So I love films like this. I find that when you watch a film like this, it makes you notice other things in your life. So say you watch this and you, you see the raindrops falling in the film. Well, in your everyday life, when the raindrops start to fall, you might notice that. Or you might notice a butterfly or you might notice when you're holding a fly swatter or something. You don't know how the film will go on to affect you. And I know that there are scenes in this film that I still think about, particularly when the little boy is, um, when there's a storm and he's outside with his arms stretched out. I love that. I love that image. It's one of my favorite images from the film. So I find at times that Ramel Ross captures moments that I myself notice and in watching the film, I'll notice those, those details again in my own life. I think films like this can connect you to your life in a deeper way and also connect you to other people's lives. You care about the people in the film. You care about these moments of their lives that have been captured thanks to Ramel Ross. And right after this 
is that scene that I love of a young, it's a young boy and then an older man and they're outside of a trailer as a very intense storm passes. Like there's a very scary freaking cloud in the distance. You can see the dark bruise of a cloud in the distance and the young boy has his arms spread out as the wind ripples his t-shirt and his shorts and he seems to love the wind. And the thing that is really unique and also difficult about living in Alabama that's very different than when I lived in North Carolina is that here in Alabama they have a tornado season and they can get really intense tornadoes. They did just a a year or two ago there was a really bad tornado that killed it was like a F5 which is the largest tornado that there is and it killed over 20 people in Beauregard I think and that was terrifying we've had tornado warnings where I live like I've literally had to get in the closet it was terrifying and so and there's sirens every time tornado season comes they test the sirens and everybody pays attention to the weather here in Alabama. You have your favorite weather person (laughs) that you watch and you rely on them. They tell you on certain days when there could be really high risk. There are tornado watches. There can be tornado warnings. Where I lived before we moved here, there was a tornado that actually came through like down the road and you can still see places like homes and stuff like that and trees that were damaged by the tornado so that's a really scary thing to me and it's every time tornado season comes it tends to be in the spring the spring is the scariest part and also there's a tornado season in the winter time as well here it's scary and it makes my anxiety increase and it's it's hard for me personally it's not something that I really dealt with in North Carolina. There was maybe a smaller threat of tornadoes in North Carolina, but it's nothing like the kind of tornadoes, very destructive, damaging tornadoes that they can get here in Alabama. So all this is to say, like, the weather is paramount in this state. Like, you pay attention to it, and you have to be really safe. There was a really terrible outbreak of tornadoes in 2011 in the Deep South, and I think Alabama had the greatest had the largest death toll. Over 200 people died in one day from tornadoes. There were F4s and there were F5s. A lot of life was lost. It's commemorated every year. It was a really, really big deal. It happened in April. I was not living here when it happened, but it happened in 2011 and it was just devastating. Over 200 people died. So it's a scary part of living in this state is the weather and the tornado season for sure. So it was even more interesting to see to see that little boy and that man outside when there almost looks like a funnel cloud in the distance almost. It was a pretty scary cloud, but they're just living it up. They love the wind and all of that. It's it's weird cuz it's a scene that mixes danger like, oh, the wind's picking up and there's this scary cloud and with euphoria and elation and joy, the little boy is just like so in love with the wind. And I mean, I remember when I was younger being that way, like when there was a windy, stormy day, I loved to go out on the porch and I loved to feel the wind like rippling my clothes and to feel the wind against my body. I used to love doing that. (laughs) I still love it, kind of. I've always been so in love with nature in that way. So, I don't know. That's like my favorite scene of the film, I think. 
We get introduced to Quincy, Quincy Bryant, and he's one of the young men who's focused on, along with Daniel Collins, and Quincy is talking about things, and he says, quote, before I leave this earth, I want to fulfill all my goals and all my dreams and everything, unquote. And that was moving to me because I could relate to that feeling, you know, of like there's so much you want to do. And he's young. Him and Daniel are very young. They're like in high school, I guess, and they're about to go into the, the next phase of their lives, becoming adults, right? I think there's a lot of longing in Quincy and everything that he wants to be and that he wants to do. And he already has a son. I think he's talking about graduating high school. He wants to show his son what's possible. He has a girlfriend as well named Boozy, and their son is named Kiri. You know, they're a family, Quincy, Boozy, and Kiri. And a lot of the film is about how their lives unfold over the next few years. And the thing about it is that when you watch the film the first time, you don't really know what it's leading to and what's going to happen to this family they end up losing a child. Boozy is pregnant with twins and one of the twins dies. And I'll talk about that. It's one of the most devastating things that I've ever seen personally. And watching it this second time for the podcast, because I always rewatch a film so that I can talk about it. I need it to be fresh in my mind. Watching it the second time, like the whole time I knew, I knew what was going to happen to Boozy and Quincy, that they were going to lose a child. I didn't know that the first time I was watching the film. We have more images of just life in Hell County, Alabama, right? There's a girl at a fair holding a little tank of water with a goldfish in it. We see a sunset. We see cheerleaders. We see a kitten in in a road as a car passes and the kitten gets out of the way of the car. It's just an accumulation of life. That's the only way I can talk about it. It's just, and it's images of black life that we don't often see. Like when we see cheerleaders, they tend to be white. We don't necessarily see black cheerleaders a lot, cheerleaders a lot. So it's also images, it's ordinary images, but it's not necessarily images that you have seen before when it comes to black people, of just black people living their lives. They're not trying to be any more than what they are. It's just ordinary, everyday life for black people living in the rural South. But it's not something that you often see. We get introduced to Daniel, Daniel Collins. We see him dancing silly. He like dances in this really silly way. And that's funny. And he wants to get in a good school where he feels respected. That's really important to him. He ends up going to Selma University, I think. And then we see this scene of like a a basketball goal filmed from below. You can see the night sky and the stars through the hoop. Basketball is really the center of the world, you know, for Daniel. And it's what he spends a lot of time doing. It's really important to him. We see some guys hanging out one night playing video games. We see them from inside the trailer that they're in, and then we see them outside of it. And I thought it was kind of important that Ramel Ross showed trailers in this film. There are a lot of trailers here in Alabama, more than I saw in North Carolina when I lived there. And the reason that this is important or that I want to bring it up is that there are a lot of trailers in Uh, Alabama. And that is a big reason why the tornadoes, when they come through this state, are so devastating and deadly, is that a lot of people live in trailers here. And trailers are so dangerous to be in when there is a tornado. Even just an F1 tornado 
which is not that big. F F zero is the smallest tornado, but even like a smaller tornado can kill somebody in a trailer because they're just so dangerous to be in. And that is why the death toll is so high at times when there's a really bad tornado. Trailers are quite prevalent, especially in poor areas and places like that. And it upsets me because people should be able to live in safe places. They should be able to have houses with foundations, but it's very difficult to afford that here in Alabama. There is a high rate of poverty in Alabama. There's not the best jobs here or or anything like that. A lot of people are, are struggling financially. They are working class. They are poor. That's part of the story here. There is a lot of poverty in the rural South. There are a lot of trailers and things like that 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 put people's lives at risk when there's really bad weather, unfortunately. It's heartbreaking to see some of the trailers that I've seen where there's windows missing. There are parts of the trailer that look like it's falling apart and you know that people live in that and they have to live in that and they don't have any other choice. They can't afford anything else. I just, I thought it was kind of important that it was included in the film, the the trailers personally, because it is a, a big part of Alabama that I noticed that was different than North Carolina for me. Also, I think what you all see in this film is the importance of sports in Alabama. Sports are a big, big deal here in Alabama. And there's a scene where one of the people has an A tattooed on on his neck and that is you know that's a really big deal uh football in particular college football is major 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 in Alabama but so is basketball and you know stuff like that I'm not into sports (laughs) as you could probably tell but it's a really big part of living in Alabama the thing about Alabama is that (laughs) this state is when it comes to basically anything bad is usually number one (laughs) when it comes to poverty poor health outcomes all kinds of really terrible things Alabama is usually at the top or near the top and one of the few good things that the state is known for are the sports and that's where there is a lot of success is football and basketball and people take a lot of pride in it they take a lot of pride um but this state has a lot of poverty a lot of negative things about it as well unfortunately when it comes to infrastructure when it comes to economic mobility when it comes to health it doesn't do too well when it comes to education things like that alabama tends to be pretty behind the rest of the country. It's not an easy place to live, I'll be honest with you. I know I talked about the beauty and all that, but there is a political reality as well of people's lives and and being working class, low wages, economically depressed areas, racism, segregation. That was another big part of this film I noticed was that there are hardly any white people in the film. When there are white people, it tends to be people who have power or authority, like a police officer. But every other part of the film, it's only black people, which I think speaks to the way that in modern America, we're still very segregated. Black and white people, they may interact at work, for instance. I'm sure there is that, like at a workplace. But when it comes to like where people live and having 
friends of a different race in this film at least that's not shown it still seems to me like it's very segregated you know white people live in their world black people live in theirs and I I think it's something we don't like to talk about as much but a lot of people just live in their bubbles right and you see that here in the rural south too you see that in the film there are times when Ramel Ross I think um, alludes to the history of slavery and he tries to do it in a way that's not stereotypical he has this scene where he shows a cotton field and as we know that's tied to slavery of course in the south but the way that he films it he's like moving he's like in a car that's moving the field of cotton blurs it all blurs together and it almost looks like snow it almost looks snowy like you're looking at a snowy field but of course you're not and Alabama rarely gets any snow I think we got snow like a few years ago and it was such a big deal the kids were outside they were making snowmen the kids were thrilled because you never get snow here we see Daniel go to Selma University he's practicing basketball we see shadows against a wall as they practice basketball I thought that was an interesting image I think there's a scene of like the eclipse the lunar eclipse or the solar eclipse it might have been the solar eclipse that happened a few years ago and it was interesting because I remembered watching that eclipse with my mom even though we were in Alabama we didn't get to see much really but we did go outside and we kind of experienced it it was kind of it was a weird experience for sure but I kind of remembered that when I was watching the film we see a man playing guitar it sounds like blues music to me Daniel has a lot of dreams he wants to go to the NFL I think because he talks about making it to the league and so I interpreted that as the NFL he talks about how he's just taking things one day at a time he's thinking about today not tomorrow he's got dreams and he's got goals and it's really important to him and he wants to I think make something of his life and that's something else that I think is really relatable about the people in this film is you can identify with that struggle I think of course as a black man in America Daniel is going to have very different obstacles than I am for instance the film is always explicit about the struggles of being black and the very specific experience of being black in America. But I do think that his dreams and his desire to be more is something that's quite universal. We meet Daniel's mother, Mary, and she talks a little bit about the past and about how she used to let Daniel stay with her grandmother. But when she tried to get Daniel back, the grandmother wouldn't let her have Daniel and that Daniel sort of holds that against her, holds that against his mother. She was with a man at the time that the grandmother didn't approve of. So we get a little... We get a little insight into the family dynamic between Daniel and his mother. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So you can see that that relationship is a little bit strained for sure. So you get a sense of their lives, a sense of their relationships. And Mary shows up throughout the film. There's quite a few scenes with Mary and I'll talk about those. And I love this scene of Kiri, who's the child of Boozy and Quincy. I love this scene of Kiri and he's just running back and forth He's just in the apartment where they live and he's just running. He runs to the living room. He runs back to the hallway and he's just running and running and running. And you're like, why is this kid running? (laughs) But that's what kids do. They do like crazy stuff that doesn't make any sense. But there was something about it, something so persistent and so intense about this little child 
running back and forth like that. I, I don't know why that stayed with me. There are scenes in the film that just, I don't know why they stay with me. They just do. And that's one of them. Just like the storm scene stayed with me. And it's hard to put into words, right? Sometimes those are the most powerful films when you feel like there's something there and there's something that you feel and you don't necessarily know how to put it into words, but it just moves you or it stays with you for some reason. We find out at this around this time that Boozy is carrying twins. And then I also liked this scene where Boozy's dad shows up with some friends and they're going to bring furniture into the part to the apartment and Boozy's just out on the balcony of their apartment and she's like looking down at her dad and I think she's eating something it looks like a piece of pizza or something and and she talks about how she looks just like her dad and I don't know I just again I know these like when I'm talking about it I'm like these are such ordinary moments but I just loved being in this world that Ramel Ross created it just it felt so intimate and she's like smiling and eating her piece of pizza and maybe for me it was more poignant because I know that one of the children in her womb is gonna die we're seeing Boozy in a way that she'll never be again like we're seeing Boozy before she's gonna go through one of the most painful things a woman or a mother or parent can go through and she looks so young you know she looks so innocent and so young and she's just talking about how she looks like her dad. And I look like my dad. My dad died. He's not alive or with us anymore. And I look a lot like my dad too. And so I guess that, I don't know. I just liked that moment. So ordinary, but just moving to me for some reason. We see Kiri, their young son, in the bathtub. And he's like covered in this white soap. And he's just sort of rubbing the soap on his skin. I thought that was just kind of interesting. I, I, I don't know why. It's like, so you feel like you're at bath time with this child or something. And you don't know him. You don't know the people in the film. But you, you're right there in their lives. You're right there participating in their lives or watching their lives unfold. These almost in a way the film feels like like a home movie or something like that just everyday everyday images everyday videos almost like home movies that's what it felt like at times where you're just right there and then this scene where they're driving down a road and they go to like a plantation uh it looks like a plantation and then we see images of like blackface it looks like it could be from birth of a nation by dw griffith it could be from i guess another film as well and then we see this uh black man putting a tire on a fire and this black smoke just pours into the sky but then we also see the sun streaming through the branches of the trees nearby and the smoke and the light seem to mingle it's this stunning scene and because Ramel Ross is there and because he has that eye that he has that artist's eye that photographer's eye he hones in on it he hones in that's also the thing about this film is that it's not just it's not a collection of images made by just anybody it's made by an artist it's made by somebody who knows how to look who knows how to find those details those poetic details that Ramel Ross is able to find because of his vision, you know, in his eye, that's how we have these images. Is that he noticed the smoke and the sun through the trees and he captured that. 
Ramel Ross captures these moments with his camera that would otherwise be lost, the way that a poet captures moments. I mean, for me, that's one of the powerful things about poetry is the way that it captures life, captures moments. Somebody like Jane Kenyon or Mary Oliver come to mind for me personally. Poets who do that, particularly Mary Oliver. And so that's what I mean by a poetic film. And I talked about this in The Tree of Life too, I think. It's the assemblage of these moments. And I think that's what makes it poetic. And I love this image of like a little boy at the barber shop. I think he's at a barber shop and there's water that's sprayed on his head or something. And that's an image that stayed with me as well. I don't know why. There's a funny scene of these guys talking and one of them goes on about an idea that he has for a movie that's like a movie in which guns don't exist anymore or there are no guns. And so people have to use spears or they have to use like old weapons. And he just gets a kick out of his idea and he's just telling it to his friends. And that's a moment we've all had, right? Like where you're with friends or you're with people and you're just talking about an idea or a thought that you have. And it's funny to you. (laughs) I don't know if it was funny to the other guys, but he just, he's so tickled by it. He's so tickled by his idea. There's an image of a guy just sitting in a car And he's looking out of the car at the camera. And he almost seems kind of shy. There's something about that image. And then another guy, I don't know if it's Quincy. I can't remember if it's Quincy or not. But he's talking about, I think he works at the catfish plant. A lot of the people in the film or in the community work at this catfish plant. And he talks about how he got like a five cent raise. How he's only making enough money so that he can get back to work, really. He only makes enough just to keep working. He doesn't really get to live very much because he makes such little money. And he probably makes, like, minimum wage. And I like that Ramel Ross includes this in the film to remind us that this is the material reality of their lives in this community. That obviously... This is an economically depressed area and people are desperate for jobs and there are companies that take advantage of that and there are really low wage, low paying jobs in the rural south. It's economic mobility is really hard and most people are just struggling and just getting by and just trying to survive, right? And that's the story for a lot of the country. Quincy does work at the catfish factory and Daniel, we're told, fears working there. He fears ending up at the catfish factory or catfish plant. And that's probably why he's working so hard at basketball, went to Selma University and just wanted to do that. He wanted something better for his life. And he's trying so hard to do that because he doesn't want to end up at the catfish plant. I thought it was very moving when Daniel's mother, Mary, talks about working at the catfish plant. We don't often, okay, first of all, We don't have a lot of films about black people who live in the rural South and just their everyday lives. Second of all, we don't have a lot of films about working class life at all, whether it's white people, black people, any people. We have very few films that articulate or show the the struggle of being working class or poor or the working poor, you know, and struggling in this country and the work that you have to do and how backbreaking it is to your body and how difficult it is for your body. I worked at a factory when I was a teenager and my father died when I was 16. I graduated high school and I had to help my mom 
you know, we were struggling financially after my dad died and I did not go straight to college out of high school like a lot of my peers did and like a lot of people do. I went and I got a job at a local factory where my mom worked and that's how I got the job. I wasn't there for very long, but it was very difficult work. I sewed fabric onto cards and it was... It was a difficult, it was mind-numbing, it was repetitive, there were no windows. I mean, it was a factory, and it was brutal to be like 18 years old, grief-stricken. My father had just died. I had anxiety, I had depression, all kinds of stuff I was dealing with. was very alone in the world, except for my mom. Didn't have a big support system, didn't have much of a family there for me. And just working at this factory and feeling like, what's going to happen to me? Where's my life going? What am I going to do? It was just, it was hard on my body. And my, I ended up developing some health issues when I was working at the factory. And my health and my body have never really been the same. And this was about, this was over 10 years ago. And, uh, and I've lived with it ever since. I was working there for minimum wage, no health insurance. It was, it was just so difficult and so hard on me. And it ruined my health. My health has never been the same. I'm just saying like factories and the catfish plant. I know it's not the same as Mary. I know it's not the same as what she goes through. But I'm saying that these kinds of jobs can be very crushing to your soul and to your body. And she gives voice to that. And she gives voice to her experience. It's in her own words. She talks about her hands and feet being frozen while she's working and she talked about how she talks about how she's grateful when she can go outside and sit in the sun and feel warmth or she can go to the break room and feel the heat I mean you can feel like the pain of that and then we see another scene so I I appreciated that I appreciated that being in the film of somebody talking about their experience working at a catfish plant it's not something we hear about. There's no documentaries made about catfish plant workers. There's not really many book, any books written about it. It's not in mainstream culture what happens in a catfish factory or catfish plant to the workers who work there. And we do know that with COVID-19, there's been a lot of outbreaks in plants like that. Plants where they're doing food and and that kind of thing. Then there's another scene. It looks like a classroom. I don't know if it was like some kind of class for adults or something. Um, And there's a man and he talks about being from the city and he talks about during the summer he would come to the country. So I don't know if he's from Alabama or he visits Alabama. I'm not totally sure. You know, people see Alabama, they see the rural South as like backwards or impoverished or not a place that you would want to go right? And he's talking about how when he used to come to the rural south, to the country, it was a joy. You know, coming from the city, it was a joy to take his shoes off, to go hunting. He talks about how his grandmother would make home remedies when he was sick. He talks about picking pecans. So he's talking about the richness of life in the south, because there is this tendency to see it as 
less than, to see it as not as important, or you can't have a rich, fulfilling, beautiful life in the rural South, that that life only exists in the cities or something like that. And I appreciated that scene of, and I think it's interesting that it comes right after Mary, because it's kind of a contrast. Like Mary's talking about the difficulties, and he's talking about some of the beauty of living in rural Alabama, that it's not all painful and difficult. And I don't think you can define somebody's life by one thing. You can't define life just by pain or just by joy, just by struggle. It's more complicated than that. And Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust kind of digs into that rural urban divide because in that film, a family is leaving a rural area and they're going to go to a more industrialized city area. There's a loss that takes place with that. There's a loss of nature, of a connection to nature, a connection to the land. There are beautiful aspects about living in the, the rural South. We see Boozy have her twins. She has Carmen and Corbin. This is probably like the most devastating part of the film. We see Boozy, Quincy, Kiri and the twins at home. And they're like this happy little family. They're whole in a way that they will never be whole again once one of the twins dies. And we actually see the twins in their car seats that are on the floor or something. And we see Carmen and Corbin. Then Ramel Ross cuts to a butterfly floating above grass. And then he gives us a title card that says Corbin was buried in the early afternoon. And I, th I still think about this. I still think about so many things in this film. I still think about how devastating this cut is to go from seeing those twins, seeing that family together, seeing them whole. And then the way that Ramel Ross reveals the death of Corbin, it's just... One of the most devastating things. I think when I watched it the first time that I cried when I saw that. I mean, I just bawled when I realized that this beautiful little baby was dead. And then we're told it was sudden infant death syndrome. So there's not really a reason for why this happened. I mean, sudden infant death syndrome, I don't think we understand a lot about it or why it happens. You can't imagine what Boozy and Quincy are feeling. I mean, they're going through a parent's worst nightmare. The butterfly that's shown seems to be at the cemetery where Corbin is being laid to rest. We see the hole in the ground where Corbin is going to be buried. But when the actual funeral takes place, Ramel Ross stays at a distance during the funeral. We, we see some of it afar. We see people crying, of course, at the gravesite. You know, I think some things are too unbearable to look at. I think there are some things that you can't get too close to. And I think there's a dignity in maybe looking away or giving people the space to grieve. And that's what Ramel Ross does. He doesn't exploit it. He doesn't do any of that. I think it's very respectful and it's devastating. It's, a, it's quiet. It's so quiet. It's just this butterfly and this hole and these people from afar. And it just feels so real at the same time. It's devastating, devastating to know that that little child is gone. And then we see Quincy talking about it. And he talks about how his worst fear was dying, was dying by choking or drowning. His worst fear was dying or getting hurt. 
and it happened to his baby, he says. Quote, it hurt me so bad, unquote. And, you know, I got to thinking, you know, after his baby died, after Corbin died, I bet he had to go right back to work at that catfish plant. I bet him and Boozy didn't even get much time to process it or think about it. Or it's like life has to keep going. Life goes on immediately. Because for the working class, you don't get grief. You know, you don't get time off for grief. You know, you don't get to take weeks or months off from your job when your baby dies. And they've still got Corb, they've still got Carmen and Kiri to take care of. And so I would imagine they had to push some of it down. They had to just push it down to keep living because they have to go on. They have to pay their bills. They have to take care of their children. They've just gone through like one of the worst things in the world. There are a few scenes where we see some of the people in the film stopped by the police. There's a couple of scenes in the film, I think, where this happens. Obviously, those are loaded moments. There are moments where, um, like with the cotton or the blackface, you feel the weight of history. You feel the danger that lurks in the South at times for black people and black men. And um, like what could happen, how that encounter could quickly turn dangerous or violent or even deadly and you feel that in the moment feel the danger even though nothing happens to any of the people in the film it's and it's a rare moment when a white person is in the film and of course it's someone in a position of power or authority and so we're reminded of that we're reminded of the racism and then and then there's successively just these sort of you know poetic images like tree branches and the night sky through the tree branches, the stars. There's this young woman at a party and she's just looking right at the camera. She's like drinking from a cup and dancing, just sort of living. We see a boy being baptized. We see a man playing a flute under this really large, gorgeous tree. We see a sign that says only Jesus saves, you know, the religion um, in the region. And there's this very intense church meeting or church session um, Mary is present at it and Daniel is present at it too and people are crying they're singing they're dancing they're screaming it's one of it's incredibly intense I wasn't prepared for it but it almost felt like this collective catharsis and it almost felt like you could feel the weight of history and trauma in that scene a community of people who struggle on a day-to-day basis uh, to pay their bills to survive to just get by they're in this room and it's almost like and you know I feel like in their day-to-day life like most people you have to just you have to tamp it down you have to push down your feelings and your emotions right whatever you're feeling whatever you're going through you just have to push it down to get through And it just felt like in this moment when they're in the church, it's like this moment of freedom for them. It's like this moment where they can just let loose. They can release and expel and exercise everything inside themselves. I mean, Mary is just weeping. Mary's crying. Daniel's crying. There's a woman crying and singing. It's like something is being expelled from their bodies. Like this, this grief, this pain, this, just this something that had built up inside of them. And it's such like a catharsis almost. And it was so powerful. I mean, you feel like you were watching something you shouldn't be watching. They were so vulnerable. 
right? And you almost feel like you should look away. It's too raw. There is a raw anguish and agony and torment. And it's like they are just releasing all of it from their bodies. We see a deer in the road, a deer caught in these headlights, and eventually the deer goes away. That's a big thing in the South, our deer. I don't know how it is in other parts of the country. My mom was driving once and she actually, a deer came out into the road and totaled our car. It was a really scary experience. I mean, she could have got hurt. Something bad could have happened to her. Thankfully, she didn't. But it is a danger here in the South. Deer. I mean, they're everywhere. And they can be pretty dangerous when you're driving. And there's a very moving scene near the end where Boozy is at Walmart. She's getting groceries probably. And she's with Kiri and Carmen. And then later on, her and Quincy are in the car. And Carmen is on her lap, is on Boozy's lap. They're going through the drive-thru of a Wendy's. Boozy gets out her phone. And we see that her screensaver is a picture of Corbin, the little the little boy that died, the Carmen's twin that died of sudden infant death syndrome, her baby. It's a photo of her baby. And it absolutely stops you in your tracks that she has a picture of Corbin as her screensaver. And she's actually talking about when the picture was taken and how he was crying. And she says, quote, you know, he was a mama's boy, unquote. And she says that she loves that picture. That scene just ripped my heart out. You wonder, you know, how many times in a day does she bring that phone out and look at that picture of Corbin? And what is she feeling? And, you know, when she says he was a mama's boy. And it's like, in that scene, I felt like, why did this baby die? I mean, this is why I can't be religious. I mean, this is why. Why did this baby die? What in the world could be the reason for it? And they just have to accept it. They just have to live with it. They just have to keep going, even though this precious little baby is gone and in the ground. It's one of those things, I think, when you go through a traumatic loss, you either find religion or you lose religion, right? For me, I mean, I never had religion. I was always an atheist in the South, which is pretty unusual, pretty rare. And when I lost my dad, I I could never ever believe that that was for a reason or there was a point to that when I saw the photo of Corbin I just couldn't believe it I was like he was just alive he was just alive he was just born he was so little and now he's gone and all she's got is a photo of him or some photos and on her phone her screensaver that she looks at every day and her baby's gone oh The grief of it, the devastation of it. God, it's hard to even talk about, honestly. There's a scene with a little boy and there's this orange toy gun by him. And again, I think it's another, um, it's another thing that connects to police brutality and violence against black people. Because I thought of Tamir Rice. It's very different for a black child to play with a gun than a white child to play with a toy gun, right? We can feel the precarity of their lives at times. When they're pulled over by a police officer, when they're playing with a toy gun, their lives could shift in an instant. We see Quincy and the family at a bowling alley. I think what's very moving is that even though they've gone through such a terrible loss and experienced such a terrible grief by losing Corbin, they also keep going. 
They keep living. They go to Walmart. They go to Wendy's. They go to the bowling alley. They're trying to salvage something. They're trying to keep living. There's that sense of resilience, that sense of strength, that sense of that they will be okay. They will get through it. But of course, there will always be that pain and that hurt and that grief. But I also thought it was beautiful that they they keep going and they keep living and life continues and but it's just heartbreaking that their baby's gone. It's not something I expected when I was watching the film. You know, when I saw Boozy give birth to those twins, I was like, oh, she's got her twins, you know, and then, and then one of them's buried and she loses her baby. It's just, I can't explain to you the grief I felt. Like, that's the connection you feel with the people in the film. Like, you care about them. And, you know, to know that she didn't have her baby anymore, it just really broke my heart. And then we see Daniel practicing basketball. And, you know, it's just this film of this accumulation of moments. But but those moments together are the substance and the material of our lives. It's the essence of our lives. This film just stunned me. It's stayed with me for several years now since I first saw it. It was powerful to see a place where I live reflected on the screen. That was really powerful for me. That's the personal and some of the emotion of the film for me. But also the the struggle of being working class, grief, loss, just trying to live and survive. So there were personal things about the film that I could relate to and struggles, my own struggles or experiences that I saw in some of the people. But then there's also their specific lives, their specific struggles, and the way that their lives are also political and connected to political things and, you know, like racism and police brutality and and really important issues, right? And So there's so, but I think at the end of the day with this film, it's about life. It's about life. Although there is death in the film in a really shocking, unexpected, just, you know, heartbreaking way. But there's also so much life and so much poetry and so much beauty. We get to see just all the facets of the human condition in this one film. I hope that I did it justice. I hope that you like this episode. I think this is an extraordinary film. I think it's really special. I have gone on long enough. I will stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films.